0: At Kili Companies, it is no secret that they believe in the power of people. In an effort to help their Kilians get to know each other a little bit better, they decided to launch the Who Do You Know campaign. The goal was simple. Kilians were encouraged to have a conversation with someone outside of their circle. That's it. These conversations, however, have brought people together and farthered their world-class culture. Shout out to the Keelian's who have made an effort to have meaningful conversations with new friends. You can learn more about those conversations about those amazing friends by visiting them online at keelicompanies.com.
1: Welcome to the Live Inspired podcast with John O'Leary. John is the number 1 national best-selling author of the book On Fire. He's a world-class inspirational speaker and he's the host of the Live Inspired podcast. John interviews extraordinary individuals on their life story so that you can wake up from accidental living and more fully live your life story. Here's your host, John O'Leary.
0: Well, hello, my friends, and welcome to the Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. You know, week after week, we try to bring you some of the most remarkable individuals with incredible stories, ultimately reminding you of what's possible in your life, and today is certainly no exception. After spending decades on the front lines of real teamwork, at the highest levels as an F-15 fighter pilot, then an F-22 fighter pilot, then a weapons school instructor, and then finally as a squadron commander, our guest today, and he's my friend, Robert CallSign Kujo Tesner, discovered how to truly become exceptional not not only as an individual fighter pilot leader but as an organization as a team so what are we going to be talking about today ultimately well we're going to be talking about how organizations and teams can win in these disruptive challenging times that we live and work in we're going to be talking about the gift of overcoming the ability we have to lean into our brothers and sisters our family our team members We're going to be talking about what it looks like to no longer fly solo, whether it's in an aircraft or far more likely for us in life. My friend, you're going to hear an incredible story of a guy who's been beat up a lot in life, hit the floor, bounce forward, and can teach the rest of us how we can do likewise. Cujo is an incredible speaker. He's a phenomenal leader. He's a good friend, a great man awesome leader in life. You're going to love him today. So what I'm going to encourage you to do right now is, yeah, go ahead. Buckle up. Okay. Buckle up, baby. We're taking this thing vertical today. Get ready to rock and roll as I bring on fighter, pilot, leader, speaker, and great human being, my friend, soon to be yours, Robert Cujo Teschner. Robert, welcome to Live Inspired with John O'Leary. Awesome to be here, John. Thank you so much for the gift of joining you today. Well, it is a gift. It just turns out that it is my gift. I I have looked up to you. I love your work. I love your words. I love the last time we had coffee together in Webster Groves, which for our listeners who are tuning in from beyond St. Louis, this this little hamlet where my family live in St. Louis, that's where you and I last visited. So here's the question. I'm going to give you a few job titles. Legion of Merit Award winner. United States Air Force Academy graduate, 1995. Number one graduate, United States Air Force Academy pilot training. 130 hours combat flying over Iraq. Goes on and on and on from there. But if you and I were to bump into each other again at that little coffee shop in Webster Groves for the first time, and you introduce yourself to me, what would you say? husband and father. And very, very
1: honored to be a husband and father. Thank the good Lord daily for the blessing of being a husband and a father to five uh, kiddos. Some of them are really, really little, uh, who I love dearly. And um, I'm so blessed to be part of that particular team. Of all the teams that I've been on throughout the course of my life, that's the one that, uh, that I cherish by
0: far the most. So Diane, that, that shout out was for you right there. And to the five kids, I'm sure I'll tune it in. Shout out also from dad. You guys are the number one team for a guy who's been part of some of the best teams in the world, man. So I'm I'm excited to hear about both those teams. And sometimes, as you know, Robert, the way we get there is to back the train up a little bit. This time we're going to reverse engines, okay? Okay. We're going to go all the way back to you growing up. I, I think your parents are remarkable. And I'd like you to first talk about your mom, who I've admiration for and then your father who I think is a remarkable human being as well so talk about your mom talk about growing up yeah uh, thanks uh, John literally in all of the podcasts that I've done
1: nobody's ever asked about uh, where I come from and I think it's a really important part of the journey and in my mom's case she has a really unique background she was born in Zagreb Uh, she and her twin sister were born a couple of years behind their older sister in war-ravaged Europe. And her father, my grandfather, was very concerned about the potential of the Soviet Union uh, coming in and taking over Croatia. And he did not want to be part of Stalin's Soviet Union. And because he was a member of the resistance, the Croatian resistance, he knew that if he were to leave Croatia and be captured by the nazis with his family that they would all be executed and so the game plan was he was forecasting where the americans would be he said if we went by foot from zagreb to munich we'd probably be there about the time that munich was was captured by the americans and and turned into essentially good guy land and so we're going to separate we're going to go by foot and whoever gets to munich first goes to the train station and waits there from noon until one for the for the grand reunion and off they went so my grandfather went by himself, my grandmother and three tiny little kiddos. I think my mom was two, two and a half or something when this when this kicks off and forgive me for being a little bit off on the ages there. Anyway, uh, my grandmother's playing hide and go seek in cornfields trying to keep the girls quiet while roving patrols are coming along. They, they're interred three different times. They managed to escape, managed to be repatriated, managed to make their way up. But it takes so long to get to Munich that my grandfather has long given up hope of ever seeing his family again, has a funeral mass celebrated for his wife and his daughters, but continues to go to the train station every day in memoriam, just sort of as a, you know, hey, this is my way of kind of honoring my family. And one day, uh, as I understand it, grandma and uh, the girls showed up. For a gentleman with two PhDs in two different languages to to, to make his way to the United States and serve as a janitor in Cleveland was a a gift. He wanted to come and, and, you know, start a... A life for a family in a in a place where he saw opportunity and hope, and that's what he saw in the United States of America. And is girls benefited when they were in Munich from GIs that would hand out evaporated milk and chocolate? That was the gift that these GIs were given away to little kids in war ravaged Munich. And to the day that she died, my mother always had carnation evaporated milk uh, in her uh, in her pantry. Uh, she always had an affinity for chocolate. She always thought so so warmly on the GIs that, um, that took care of her that she ended up giving birth to three <laughs> eventual GIs, myself in the Air Force, my brother Anthony, who was in the Navy, and my brother John who served in the Army, which I think is kind of a, kind of a typical American story wow. of seizing on and trying to achieve hope, uh, finding it here and then giving back. And, uh, and so that's mom. And, and probably the biggest thing that I can say about my mother which was a continuation of what it was that her parents gifted her it was the gift of faith. I, I, I look at my mom as being the
0: origin story to the gift of faith that I'm blessed to have today. Was not expecting you to go into that kind of detail and loved it, man. The, the, the journey from a war-torn part of the world when it all seemed like it was falling apart and getting worse, separating and then reuniting and then with PhDs and everything else coming over with a mop and building it back up again, raising a daughter to the right way, who then ultimately raised three kids to serve something bigger than themselves. What what a great Genesis story. So that that's your mom. And as remarkable as she is, and we could spend an entire podcast on her, your father, I mean, Tom Cruise should play this dude in a movie sometime. Like your dad really has a, a pretty radical story himself. So talk about what you learned about life from your dad. Yeah. Well, dad was also inspired by faith. Grew up, here in St.
1: Louis my affinity for the city of the great city of St. Louis is driven by him. He was born and raised uh, really close to the St. Joan of Arc parish that's where he grew up and went to school right down the street from Pietros which is off near Ted Drews on Chippewa if you're familiar with St. Louis you know what these landmarks might mean. Anyway, dad early on was on the path to becoming a priest actually uh, was in the high school seminary uh, but made the decision that that wasn't the path for him. So also has the has the faith uh, aspect of things. Uh, but as the oldest of seven decided that his journey was gonna take him into the armed forces of the United States. Unfortunately, though he wanted to fly, he had horrible eyesight. And so he, uh, he started his Air Force journey as an intelligence officer, went to Vietnam as an intelligence officer in support of a fighter squadron, wins the bronze star as an intelligence officer, uh, primarily for his exploits uh, hopping in the backseat of anything that was flying over bad guy <laughs> line, uh, to be able to more accurately report what was going on. And, and his stories from that time, um, aren't, he didn't share them very often because of how difficult they were. But when I heard them, they were, they were incredibly moving and powerful, yes. made some tremendous connections, uh, spent some time on the heels of, uh, operation homecoming debriefing one of the prisoners of war from Hanoi, um, developing a deep connection with the gentleman who went through incredible torture and horrible conditions and that shaped dad as well. Eventually went to law school um, and became a judge advocate general in the Air Force and served as an attorney until he retired and then an attorney after he retired until an unfortunate accident took him out back in 2010. Uh, Dad was the person that I looked up to as an example of what's right, living living with integrity and, and very importantly, doing what was necessary to make sure that the family was well taken care of. I honored the fact that he gave us all constantly. And even though um, he was at work a ton, I respected that. And I also respected his service. He's the reason why I joined the Air Force. Mm -hmm. I I missed when he retired. I felt like we were losing part of our family. And I said to him and to everybody else, I've got to go back and become part of the family.
0: And Let's talk about you joining that family because it didn't seem super likely at first. My understanding of you, Robert, is that you weren't super athletic, yeah. you're clearly kind of, you were fine academic, you liked music, is that accurate?
1: Yeah, I was, um, when dad was here at Wash U in St. Louis going through law school, uh, that's the one time we lived in St. Louis, I was like two through four, I became a Suzuki trained violin player at the age of two, a couple years later, I followed up with classical piano, I was the piano and violin guy all the way through uh, until we moved to Germany um, in high school, I was the captain of of the team, just not the cool team. I was the captain of the speech and debate team. It took me a long time to be willing to confess that.
0: Yeah. Uh, I mean, um, something yeah, she sure, should sure. probably not share on the Live Inspired podcast. Could yeah, you? Well, That no, might be one of them. We can edit that out, can't we? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, I, I'm, uh, so all my kids are into sports, and I always wanted a kid who was into stuff that maybe the athletes were missing like debate, like speech, like theater, like music. I think it's so cool when kids are into that. So what got you into that? Yeah,
1: I think part of it was I realized my ambition since I was four years old uh, was to go to the Academy. It was when I was four is when I saw Star Wars. Uh, Luke Skywalker wanted to go to some Academy. I wanted to be like Luke. And, and so that was that was baked in since I was a young kid. I also wanted to be a fighter pilot. It was the equivalent of being an X-Wing pilot you know, here on planet Earth. Uh, top gun reaffirmed that both of those things were what I needed to do but I had an interesting journey I was in Germany for three years fifth through seventh grade and here everybody's playing soccer and they're playing soccer really really well they're playing handball and they're playing ping pong like games that I had never even heard of or you know dabbled in so when I show up I'm behind the timeline like I'm not as good as everybody else is when it comes to soccer I'm like downright dangerous you know so I can't I don't I don't fit in over there, and then I come back. I skip eighth grade, go straight into high school. Now I'm trying to play baseball, which is my passion, but everybody else has been playing baseball for the last four or five years, and so I'm hopelessly behind. So I, I, I can't keep up with anybody. Uh, in fact, I'm an embarrassment, and I, I'm a, you know, I'm embarrassing myself. So out of fear, shame, whatever else, I just, I just give up trying to do the things that I want to do, and have to find another way to get into the academy, which is to emphasize the areas that, that maybe set me apart from others, and so I go into speech and debate. I go into acting. I go into, you know, being the whatever club president that I can be for every club that will have me. And um, what was done out of necessity ends up being one of the things that I look back on uh, with gratitude for. It just so happens that the skill set that I learned uh, on the speech and debate team served me incredibly well throughout my Air Force career and beyond. Tell me what you mean by that, because I'm, I'm curious. I think, I think the ability to articulate uh, and to support an argument. Is a really really important thing to have and you know as a as a fighter pilot what's interesting is is that you're a teacher first like if you can't teach somebody on your team how to do the things that are expected of them then you can't be effective as a leader and you know teaching necessitates speaking and what i found was was that i had the additional gift of being able to to speak well so that i could teach effectively. And that was part of the journey and part of what it was that set me up for success in a career that was centered on being at nine times the force of gravity and flying at just shy of twice the speed of sound. The speaking thing set me apart. Hmm.
0: How much of speaking and winning in quotes arguments is around listening well? Oh, I mean, you can't listen. uh, All of the
1: rest of it kind of falls apart. And specifically on the teaching side, you have to be able to understand what it is that's happening. You have to hear the perspective of the members of your team in order to be able to properly dissect what it was that took place to correctly diagnose and fix if there's issues or correctly justify why it is that you're praising somebody. So it's a it's a huge component for sure.
0: Brother, you go, you go into the Air Force Academy, which in and of itself is a difficult program to make it into. Talk about even how unlikely it is to dream as a kid of being an X-Wing Luke Skywalker pilot and then to ultimately be able to get behind a fighter plane and do exactly that. Because the the math here typically doesn't work out for us. No, it
1: doesn't. And it didn't work out for me either. I was across the state when my father retired. He went to uh, work at the uh, U.S. Attorney's Office in Kansas City. So uh, in high school, I was blessed to go to three different uh, high schools. Uh, Two in the great state of Alabama, in Montgomery, Alabama, And then one in Kansas City and went to Rockhurst High School. And uh, the the whole ambition all the way through life, Air Force Academy, Air Force Academy, I almost don't even apply anywhere else because that's the only place that I want to go. And then I get rejected. And I remember getting the letter and just being disappointed by how poorly it it was written. And by poorly it was written, I mean, it didn't even say, thanks for trying, try again next year. It said, good luck which said to me that not only did I not meet standards, but I wasn't even close. Right, right. And I was just, I was just, I was kind of disappointed. I mean, I was hundred percent. I was really disappointed. But then what was fascinating to me was how, if, if I was to kind of disassociate myself from myself for a moment and look at what it was that I was experiencing in that moment. I remember thinking, all right, the goal is still there. I'm just got to find another way to achieve it because the Air Force Academy was a stepping stone into fighter pilot dump. And so then the next question is, how else can I achieve that same goal? And so uh, I was in the process of figuring out who my roommate was going to be at the University of Missouri, Columbia. I had just finished my last um, final. It was my chemistry final at Rockhurst. So That kind of tells you how late in the year it is. It's probably late May. And my mom comes in our Ford Escort station wagon to pick me up from school. Okay. So like clearly in the coolness factor, if you ask my kids, they would say it's never been there for sure that day there was zero coolness. So she comes and picks me up and she takes me um, to red lobster somewhere close to Rockhurst high school, red lobster. And at red lobster for lunch that day, she, you know, she seated across the table and she, she hands me this, this tie clip. Uh, it's like a 740, it's a gold 747 tie clip. And she's like, Hey, you know, I was going to give this to you whenever you got accepted to the academy, You know, and now that you're done with your finals, it just seems appropriate that we, we go to lunch here and kind of celebrate the conclusion of high school. And by the way, Senator's office just called and you just got accepted to the Air Force Academy, so here's your tie clip. Wow. And I, I remember just jumping for joy, <laughs> literally standing up and just screaming and going, oh my gosh. And so like a couple of weeks prior to the beginning of basic training, Taylor and Charlie, yours truly, um, makes it because a bunch of other people must have said, no, thank you. They went elsewhere, and thus begins the journey. So mine was a story of failure, and somehow, through through massive degrees of, of grace, luck, blessing, whatever, uh, getting a chance to go live the dream, despite
0: myself. And work. One, one of the things that's amazed me about guys like you, and there are many folks who are as dedicated and focused as you were and are, I wasn't one of them. I meandered throughout the majority of my life until I really figured out the call. You knew it early on and you pursued it with everything you had. While while other guys, in particular in training, were out having fun at nights, on the weekends, you were dedicated. What does that drive to ignore the background noise and remain focused on the mission? Where where does that come from? And, And maybe even more importantly... How do we find it in our own
1: lives? For me, I go back to, and this is why I think it's brilliant that you started with my parents. Um, I think this was instilled in me through my family. I mean, you think back, my grandfather, he has the ambition, let's get out of a dangerous place. Let's not be part of what Stalin's doing with the countries that he's overtaking. Let's go find a place Mm -hmm. where we can be free and where we can achieve hope. And so he comes to America, he has his eye on the prize. He has a long-term plan of where it is that he wants to go an objective and he's gonna do everything that he can to get there. It took him, part of the story that we didn't talk about was the 14 years that the family spent in Brazil. Why? Because they couldn't get a visa to get to the United States. So my mom actually grows up in Brazil. So she's, when she used to curse at me, it was was partially in Portuguese, partially in in Croatian. Uh, Luckily, I didn't understand what it was that she was saying to me, but I heard a lot of it. And then finally, you know, as a college student, she shows up over here and goes to UMSL and meets dad. Uh, Dad, same thing, you know, as a as a prosecuting attorney, I think he could have spent literally every hour of the day preparing for cases. These were important cases that he was trying. He had an objective in mind. He was giving everything that he could to achieve it. And so I grew up around that. And then it was just natural that I would be in the same kind of a. and I felt like I was always sort of having to play catch up a bit, you know, making up for lost time, Germany to the U.S., Trying to find another way, but the but the vision stayed there, and then and then to you know how do we get there? I think it really comes down to taking the time to try to understand what our purpose is, and if there's one thing that I lament about the early phase of my life is, is that I never tried to go in and actively discern. Like I knew for whatever reason coming out of the theater in, in Brentwood or wherever it was that we saw Star Wars, that this okay. is what I wanted to do. I, but I never spent any time like reflect, like, is it, is it truly what I should be doing? Like, is this the right thing to be doing? Like, I just, I just accepted that. I'm like, hey, fighter pilot, then, that's it. Top Gun, that, that you know, that sealed the deal for me. And there was no doubt in my mind. What I think I'll, I'll eventually evolve into is, is that it's probably worth on a spiritual note to spend some time discerning, um, to talk with. You know, sort of the big guy, and 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 get uh, his perspective on where where things ought to be, because that's really where it is that we're aiming. When you say
0: that, what what questions? When you say the big guy, God, yeah. reflection, yeah. any yeah. format that you want to kind of offer that idea of reflection and discernment. What are the questions we should be asking to discern what yeah. we're called to do next?
1: Here's here's my here's my my daily affirmation. Which then leads into help me to do it. It's 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 Thy will, not my will, be done. And I think I'm. If there's one thing that I can say about myself is, is that I was very much, since I was four years old, uh, bent on achieving my will. <laughs> you know, like like this is what I'm here to do, and I'm going to do it without any sort of hesitation. I mean, you throw an obstacle my way, I'm going to overcome that thing but perhaps the better approach would have been to say hey this is what i think i'm i'm here to do help me to understand what it is that you want me to do and give me the give me the strength and the grace necessary to be able to do it mm-hmm. and if 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 we can if we can go that approach then i think we're onto something and so it t- it takes it takes me a little while to get there and i'm i'm grateful for the journey like there's no doubt whatsoever that the journey was a, was a perfect one uh, for me But I don't know that I was as intentional. In fact, I know that I wasn't
0: as intentional early on about trying to actively live God's will in my life. So I'm going to ask you some geeky questions now because I love flying. And oddly enough, this guy who travels the world, me, as a speaker, used to be terrified of flying. I hated it, man. Just dreaded because I was pretty sure it was my last trip out. Uh, Now I love it. So question number one: Air Force Academy. What was the first time that you flew by yourself, solo flight? What were you flying and how'd you feel? I think the official designation
1: was the Schweitzer SGS 233 sailplane. So at the conclusion of freshman year, I think it's a volunteer program. You get to go through soaring, um, whatever the official designation was. It's, It's basically flying gliders. A buddy of mine was a glider instructor. So he taught me how to fly gliders and then he set me up for my solo. And I remember taken off for the first time by myself now as an 18 year old kid in an airplane never flew before I got to the academy not on my own you know and uh this this tow plane is 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 taking me up into the sky and the interesting thing about a glider is like you gotta you gotta plan ahead (laughs) you better know where the runway is yeah you're always kind of keeping it look okay there is where it is don't get too far away you know you're kind of sensing the wind anyway I remember coming in and landing the sucker by myself, yellow airplane, nothing spectacular about it, but just thinking to myself, that was amazing. And that's where I knew that I was, I was meeting some component of my purpose. Like I knew that I was driven to do this and that I was in the right place for that time. And what was the first fighter plane you flew? uh, That was the F-15. So after about call it 13 months of pilot training, three months of fighter lead in training to help you prepare for What's going to be demanded of you in the F-15 program, I went down to Tyndall Air Force Base in beautiful Panama City, Florida, and got a chance to fly my very first F-15 flat, massive fighter airplane, two-seater. Um, Captain Abby Svedine was in the back seat uh, to make sure I did this thing safe. I remember we came back in for a first touch and go, and he's like, hey man, put the power back in. It's time to take off again. I'm like, we haven't landed. He's like, yeah, you have. It was so smooth, and I had no concept that we were actually touchdown. It was such an amazing experience.
0: The F-15, That's is that the one they flew in Top Gun?
1: No. In Top Gun, they flew the F-14, uh, the Tomcat. The F-15 Eagle uh, is an Air Force airplane uh, that we're still flying today. We've still got two active duty F-15 squadrons in, uh, in Japan. And then we've got a bunch in the Air National Guard. And the, the cool thing, John, for you as a native St. Louisian is that this is a McDonnell Douglas product that was hand assembled on the production lines at McDonnell Douglas Aircraft Corporation, St. Louis, Missouri, now Boeing. We're building new F-15s right now called the EX. And in February of 2022, Boeing launched out the first one of those. And it takes everything that
0: was good about the F-15 and builds on it. You had a a two-decade career, and it's impossible to sum up all that into one moment. but But is there a moment that you look back on and you recognize the high watermark of that career was this? So yeah. for you, looking back at a little bit more than two decades, what was the high water mark? There is no doubt. When I was a young pup
1: coming up in a fighter squadron, the people that I looked up to were our, our weapons school graduates, the folks that had gone through the Air Force equivalent of Top Gun. They were the best instructors, they were the best practitioners, they were the they were unbeatable in the skies. They were just, they were just incredible. They set such a high standard and, and they were just so excellent in everything that they did. And I was very privileged to have outstanding weapons officers, as we call them, in the formative phases of my life, and like a wide gulf between them and myself. And then uh, one day, my leadership says, Kujoi, want you to go to weapons school. And I'm like, well, that, that doesn't make any sense because, like, I'm not one of them. Like, <laughs> clearly you're making a mistake. We've got two weapons school classes a year, five and a half month long program, hardest program that I've ever been to, by far, bar none. And not everybody makes it through. Six of us got a chance to go in July of 2002. Jump jumped to the conclusion. I left Langley Air Force Base in Virginia, driving across the country to, to Nellis Air Force Base in Las Vegas, knowing that this was a big mistake and that I was going to be kicked out of the program. Okay, like I, I figured I might be able to survive a month. That's how much time I guess. So if I could survive a month, that'll be an achievement. And then I've got to lose myself. Like once I get kicked out, that's going to be a little bit embarrassing. So I got to find some assignment someplace, Far, far away where everybody forgets about me. Fast forward, December of 2002, it's graduation night. I've got a bunch of friends sitting at the table that came in from all over the place to celebrate. And now it's time for the awards. I won the Outstanding Graduate Award for my class. Wow, man. Which I still I still don't understand. I mean, I was in, in such an incredibly talented class. And for them to call Captain Robert C. Tashner to come up there and to get this gigantic trophy, it's actually right over there. Uh, and to come back and, and the way that it works in the F-15 division of the weapons school is every graduate of the F-15 division is there uh, on graduation night and they shake the hands of all the new graduates. So to, to be in that crowd, I did not feel like I, I belonged there and to have been recognized, though, there's nothing that beats that. And then that night is when I found out I got to come back as an instructor. And um, I've, I've been in a command position a couple of times.
0: I think Man, I saw this movie. I think uh, Tom Cruise may have played you. <laughs> I mean, really like the, the similarities. It's pretty funny. you know, you don't even belong here and we yeah. won't use the words that follow behind that. So you did not feel like you belonged there. Oh, no. You made it in, you made it in the Academy. You eventually make it into your version of Top Gun and you graduate right. number one in the class. What an accomplishment. And yet what we know about Icarus is as high as he may fly. Eventually you get too close to the sun and you come crashing down in your case not because of your own decision-making, but because life sometimes throws you a curveball and you're about to get a few. So I'd like to go through a couple of those. As you advance through your career, you meet a beautiful woman named Diane, you marry, you have a few kids with this lovely bride of yours. And then while you're in Germany, I think, a diagnosis is gonna change not only your life and your career, but hers. Talk talk about that. Yeah, uh, in order to talk about that, A couple of um,
1: scene-setting moments for you. First of all, I met her when I was a student at Weapon School. So the parallels with Top Gun continue. I invited her to be there graduation night.
0: Peggy Benjamin was her name at that time. That's right. The Admiral's daughter. And only a few of our (laughs) listeners have any idea what we're talking about right now. That's all right. That's your fault for not knowing the movie Top Gun
1: better. Bingo. And when I came back as an instructor, that's when we started dating and eventually got married. So then fast forward. A decade later, I, I'm a brand new instructor at the weapon school in 2004. In 2014, I awake from my colonoscopy to find that I've got a tumor. Uh, the doctor says he thinks it's been growing in my lower colon uh, for about a decade. So we're, we're in downtown Stuttgart, Feihingen, Germany. And this doctor says, I estimate this tumor has been growing for 10 years. If you do the math on that, that takes me back to my time as a young instructor at the fighter weapon school. So that was, that was probably uh, the worst pivot point in my life. (laughs) You know, you hear about the the devastating implications of colon cancer. and Now, there I am. I'm seated next to Miss Diane. She's six months pregnant with our fourth child, Stephen. We've got a history of miscarriages in that moment. We're worried about losing Stephen because of the stress of what it is that's to come. I've only recently, I think, kind of really started emphasizing this because I I really feel like it's, it's an important point for folks who seek hope you look at the career that I, that I was blessed to have. Like I got a chance to live my dream in a fighter squadron. And one of the things that I learned early on in a fighter squadron is things never go according to plan.
0: Hmm.
1: I I mean, we plan very, very well. Um, but we know even on the heels of, of a very well-planned mission that nothing is going to go according to plan. Like the tankers are going to not have enough gas or that somebody's going to get lost coming to the thing or whether the bad guy's are going to be worse or the weather's going to turn horrible or the radar's going to not go to work or your airplane's going to break. Whatever, any number of things is going to happen. Uh, and yet, what's interesting about, about fighter combat and, and just writ large kind of the ethos in the armed forces of the United States is We anticipate that everything's going to go to heck in a handbasket. We're still going to win. So, like, our mindset is, our mindset is, bring it on because we're still going to win. Like, and that's instilled in you early on. So, then fast forward, we get this horrible news. Okay. Diane's in tears. I'm still in shock. What's the first thing that we do on the heels of this diagnosis? We go to lunch. Why? (laughs) Because she's starving. She's six months pregnant. She's always starving. I've just done colonoscopy prep. So, regardless of, And it's going to take five days to get the diagnosis back, like the biopsy results back. Regardless of whether it's days, weeks or months left to live, I'm starving right now. So we go to lunch. And it was at lunch where instinct kicks in. And maybe it's not instinct. Maybe it's probably better better typified as years of living, it kicks in. And I remember telling Diane that our story just got better. (laughs) And it was not... It was not like some dramatic, like, like, if we can get through this, I can use this on a podcast with John O'Leary someday. It was like, we're living this, this this thing just happened, but we affirmed, and she agreed with me in that moment where we affirmed that our story just got better. And it's a mindset shift that says, okay, we just got handed a bad piece of news. Not really in control of a lot here, other than how it is that we're going to respond to it. And our response is we're going to find some way, Lord willing, to still win despite this. What's fascinating to me looking back on that timeframe was, was that from that moment on, Diane and I, who already were, I think, a pretty tight-knit couple, like we really enjoyed being together, we enjoyed spending time together, we, we sort of never got tired of one another, we were enjoying growing a beautiful family, we actually became tighter mm in the moments that followed. And the, mo- the, the days, weeks, and months that followed were horribly difficult. Like two horrific GI surgeries, it, it, it just cha- it changes our lives. Like I, I can't fly airplanes. Uh, the surgeon said you'd rip apart from the inside if you were to pull nine times the force of gravity, which didn't sound very attractive to, to me or to her. And yet through that, we laughed more than we ever have together. Through that, we became much closer And we are closer to this day because of that. And it also leads us into a, hey, maybe there is something bigger that we're working towards here. Maybe, maybe part one of our lives set us up for what it is that we're really supposed to be doing here. And that part two
0: is gonna be the, this is gonna be the shining victory. Second act. Yeah, second Um, act. Before we get into the second act, the first one's incredible, but it ends with a diagnosis. It ends with some pretty radical surgeries. It ends with you being completely incapacitated for a year and pretty much out of the game for three. And it ends with you on this podcast today saying, wow, what a story it brought us together. So for our listeners right now, living a version of that story and they're in the middle of it and they are seemingly falling out of love with their partner, with their life, with hope, what was something that you may have done back then that brought you closer together with Diane and she with you? That might it might be something we can utilize in our own lives as we struggle where we are right now. Sort of the irony of,
1: of the journey that I've described to you is, is that the centerpiece of life in a fighter squadron is building and maintaining a high-performing team. You can't get the job done by yourself. One of the things that I don't like about either movie is that they sort of only concentrate on the pilots. And what I would tell you is, is that those missions can't, happen unless the entire team of you know 350 people in an air force fighter squadron uh, are getting the job done i mean you come out to the to the flight line in the morning there's a kid maybe a, a senior teenager young 20 something year old who's saluting you saying she's ready for you sir and you believe that everything's ready to go i've got two dear friends two actual teammates of vmax group who both survived ejections where they ejected at a fraction of a second before death mm. And the reason that they're alive today is because the teenagers who took care of those ejection seats did it correctly, and everything was on point, ready for action when it was needed. And I mean, teenagers, you know, 19 air refueling is my last air uh, deployment going across the Pacific Ocean out of Honolulu and Okinawa, teenagers sitting there, you know, placing high-pressure gas into a receptacle behind my cockpit that I can't even see to make sure that I don't have to eject in the middle of the Pacific. I mean, so there's a team there and, but the, the funny thing is is that we're very very good at building and maintaining those kinds of teams in the work domain. What I found ironic was was that what I was teaching at work I wasn't necessarily teaching at home. And it was through the journey of cancer that we identified the irony and we also decided Diane and I did that those principles, the ones that I had previously said in artificial divide, like those are work principles would actually serve us well at home. And the reason why we did this is, is that in my reflections of what it was that happened, I realized the initial symptoms that highlighted the fact that my system wasn't necessarily 100% ready to rock and roll. They appeared in 2004 when I was a young instructor at the weapons school and I did nothing about them. I didn't share them with anybody. I thought doctors were there to clip my wings. I didn't trust them. Um, I didn't have time. I was bulletproof. I was young. I It's all these different things, at least in my own mind. And I did, I I certainly didn't have the time or space to be sick. Mm. So I willed myself to get better. After a few months, the symptoms went away. I proved to myself my dominance over my own body. A decade later, when the symptoms reappear, I'm like, hmm, this is the second time. Surely at a minimum, I owed it to to Diane to tell her what was going on. Maybe the, the smart move would have been to have communicated what it was that was happening in order to keep the mission of being able to serve our country going forward because in order to serve the country as a fighter pilot, I've got to stay healthy, but I didn't have that mission mindset at home. I then arguably didn't even really have a a central purpose at home, and so I missed the mark. Find out after all of this mess that my family has a history of colorectal cancer. Find out afterwards that this thing could have literally been nipped in the bud had I paid proper attention to it, and that was an eye-opening and potentially devastating bit of news. I could see where you could be really depressed knowing that you led yourself into a world of hurt uh, but it was it was diane who said you know who here has that kind of a mindset and the family side who here is like really intentional about like let's let's live a mission focused purpose driven yeah. family team kind of a kind of a war? she goes so don't don't beat yourself up for not meeting a standard that literally nobody else that we know has but maybe we ought to start to live it now moving forward mm.
0: so when you and i first met, you handed me a book called A Brief to Win. And I read it then, I read it again to get ready for today's interview, and I loved it. And I think you wrote it in part to share the lessons you learned as an Air Force officer, as a top gun, number one graduate, everything else that you were part of, so that we can apply that in the boardroom of life. I read that, though, as a father, and as a husband, and as a son, and as a friend. When I think about debriefing to win, I think about what it means for me and my most important relationships. Some of those are professional. Many of them are personal. And I think that is on the heels of the story you just shared. So the question to you, my friend, Colonel, is why did you write Debrief to Win? The original version of this book had the story of the cancer
1: journey in it. What I wanted to do was share with the world how not to make the same mistake that I had made and also to learn the art form that we use in a fighter squadron to be resilient. How it is that we have the difficult conversations about the things that didn't go well in a way that builds trust and helps us to bounce back, to have a better mission the next time. And I figured that there would be utility there. Like if I had a book, maybe people would take me seriously, maybe that would help the business. Um, But in writing this, and it took me five days to write Debrief to Win, I started Monday, finished Friday. And in those five days,
0: it was based. That, by the way, that that's annoying. Because <laughs> uh, it takes me like a couple of years to write a book. And then yeah. some editors, like, what is this? You know, start over again. So uh, I'm You're impressed you did that in five days. The key difference though, John, is your books are great. Okay. <laughs> this this <laughs> so this is one, yours.
1: This one's slightly below average, but but it was easy to write because it was on my heart. And and I knew that there was utility in this. Like It's just very practical. Like If we could learn how to dissect things in a right way that's positive forward focused to help us have a better tomorrow, then that can serve us literally anywhere. So if you want to look at this thing from the spiritual standpoint, like thinking through like the, the ultimate purpose of where it is that we're going, perhaps frequent reflections on whether or not we're on track for success is not only worthwhile, but mission critical to achieving it. And then you can look at it practically speaking from the family standpoint in a world that's so busy and where there's so many competing interests and things are constantly getting more complex. And there's so many demands in our times and kids are going here and the sports there. and da, 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 da. It's so easy to get lost in all the mix. Why in the heck we're, we're actually here and what it is we're trying to achieve. I mean, in our family's case, we've, we've decided that our mission is to bring good people into the world and to, be, and to be part of that as well, with the purpose being to get each other. That's Diane and myself and our children to heaven. And so if that's not if we're not constantly coming back to that and assessing whether or not we're on track for that, then we're we're missing the mark. And then there's a real practical application of this in any business team setting as well. So anyway, why did you write that, Cujo? To meet a lot of different needs, but there's a there's a there's a strong
0: undercurrent here of preparing ourselves for what it is we're trying to achieve ultimately in life. Even the title kind of gives away what you're going to get when you read the book. But it's surprising to me how few of us debrief to win. You know, I, we work with major league sports teams. They play a game, very seldom do they actually debrief that game before they start planning for the next one. These are the best of of the best of what they do athletically. Corporately, most of us are racing and racing and racing, very seldom tracking how did today go, what could have made tomorrow even better. For you as a fighter pilot, though, before you really take off your jumpsuit, before you have a cocktail or a coffee to wrap up the day, you get back into the room and you debrief with the guys. Why is that so important? the most
1: valuable thing that we can experience in the midst of a mission. So in a fighter squadron is to learn from it. Like once the mission is done, it's done. You're never going to, you're never going to be able to reachieve whatever it was that happened that day. Cause that thing, that data is, is done. It only, the only, only question is what are you going to do with that? Are you going to, are you just going to let it, you know, filter out into the universe? Or are you going to do something with it? And starting back in world war one, my tribe said we ought to learn every time. We ought to learn, we owe it to our country to learn every experience that we have from that to make the next mission better. And I think it's a beautiful mentality. We'll spend at the weapons school, depending on our phase of flight. We might, we might be flying tactically for 30 minutes. Depending on phase of flight, we might debrief that thing for 19, 20, 21 consecutive hours. Bathroom breaks only, we're in the room until we're done. Painful. Painful process, but we only have five and a half months to give somebody a PhD level education. So we're going to maximize that opportunity. Why wouldn't you learn constantly? We waste so much time in meetings that are pointless. The one meeting that isn't though, is to learn from the experience of whatever it was that we just finished doing to make the next iteration better. That in a world of never ending disruption, it just makes sense, but I'm biased. I lived it. And if you What's- do- Google search. I mean, truly, if you and I've done this, John, you know, hey, you know, fighter pilot debrief, you'll find people that I've never met before who will who will advocate for the most important part of any mission by far is learning from it.
0: So why wouldn't we? So give us one thing we can do outside of getting the book, and I'm sure our listeners will, but outside of getting the book to brief to win, what's the one thing we should begin doing right now in our family as a spiritual person, as an athlete, as a business owner, whatever the role of life is that matters most now, what's one thing we should begin doing right now to to debrief to win? And I get asked this question all the time, like, you know, hey, you
1: just had a failure last week, Kujo. Should we use the debrief mechanism, the tool here to, to dissect it? I say no. We don't want a debrief to be associated with negativity. We don't want to just debrief the failures. We want to debrief the wins. But really the most powerful thing that we can do is plan to succeed we'll find from frequent debriefs is we learn how to plan better. And in planning better, we learn how to set ourselves up to, to win. So an outcome of the debrief is planning. So if, if, but if you wanna just jump straight to the conclusion here, if I'm your audience, don't even buy the book, don't even read debrief to win, just spend some time during this time frame, whenever it is that you hear this thing. Dig it into why are you here? Like what's your purpose? And then craft a plan to achieve it. It just naturally follows logically that you'd be checking up on to see on a regular basis, regular intervals. Are we on track to achieve success? And if no, what are you going to do about it? But I think it starts with figuring out why are you here and what are you going to do to achieve that, that definition? And that would be a worthy and noble purpose for anybody that's mm-hmm. listening
0: to you today. So I have uh, my attorney, my dear friend, Brian Caveney, M- Marine, my next door neighbor. John Comerford, Navy, Navy pilot, and now I've got you. And you guys are always throwing around these great terms, terms that we don't use outside of the military branches. One is commander's intent. I think that's a cool phrase. Tell us what commander's intent is and
1: and what it means. John, nice job. I mean, truly, I'm impressed by you doing your homework so well. What is commander's intent? Ancient Prussian principle came out in the mid-1800s to support a concept called Auftragstaktik. What is Auftragstaktik? Poorly and loosely translated into the English language as mission-style orders or mission command, the organizational philosophy that ancient Prussians adopted to deal with the challenges of a disruptive world. And what it says is we need centralized command, decentralized execution. We need employees who are empowered to make decisions at their level to advance our cause. We need to become agile. And this was centuries before agile becomes a buzzword in business. Dangerous proposition to empower your employees to make decisions in place of use. So, how do the Prussians accommodate that? They say if we give our employees commander's intent, they're going to make high quality decisions. What's commander's intent? Three things it's the team's purpose, it's the key tasks that need to be accomplished, it's the end state that we're marching out to achieve. Notice how to support the previous answer and state yeah. where we're going, why are we here, purpose, why are we? That's, if we are clear here, then we can make high quality decisions always to help advance our cause. Who, who lives
0: that pretty well, I think? Ritz-Carlton, Chick-fil-A. Another thing, both of those organizations live very well is another term you use a lot. And this is the last question around the book I'm gonna ask about, mutual accountability. I think that that's just a great phrase describe it and more importantly than describing it how do we as a couple we as a business begin living into mutual accountability
1: if i hold myself to a different standard than i hold you then we don't have we don't have a just culture and if we don't have a just culture then we lose trust and if we lose trust we don't have commitment and we don't have commitment. We don't have performance. And so I would say, culturally speaking, what we want is is justice. Everybody's held to the same standard. When that falls apart in society, when that falls apart business team, when that falls apart at home, it creates an epic rift. It does nothing good. Everybody suffers. The way that it works in a fighter squadron is everybody's held to the same standard and the leader holds themselves to a higher one. (laughs) So in the mutual accountability world, everybody's fighting over who it is that's most, resp- on the heels of a failure, who it is that's most responsible for why we fail. Taking absolute ownership always. And if you can do that, like you have, you have people that are arguing about, no, this is more my fault than yours. <laughs> you're living epic levels of trust and you're creating an environment that
0: people are sad to leave. So my, my friend, before we get into the final seven questions called the Live Inspired Seven, what's the one bit of advice that you would whisper to someone right now listening to our voices on the podcast who feels as if they are flying by themselves, who feels a little bit unsure of where the destination is and certainly has some struggles on how to get there safely and effectively. So for those of us right now wondering what tomorrow has in store for them, but hoping that it's better than yesterday, what should we do? Yeah. Yeah. I would say, maybe it's time to go try to build a team.
1: Uh, and, and if I may, traips back into storyland for just a moment. Um, when I went into my first surgery there in, in Germany, I asked the hospital, the Katharinen Hospital for a single room. I'm like I need to be by myself. And they're like, yeah, we'll do everything we can. I'm like, no, no, this isn't, a, this isn't something that's up for debate. I'm getting my own room. I do not want a roommate. So what happens when I show up? I've got a roommate, 85 year old guy. Did not, did not, did not have any joy in that. In fact, I was, I was downright miffed. Okay, I was very upset. I'll spare you the details. Maybe that's a subject for another day, but I will tell you this. That guy almost literally saved my life. Didn't want to be there. I found him to be an incredible annoyance. He snored horrifically. I didn't sleep the night prior to my, to my most important medical procedure, shy of my birth. And yet when I needed a teammate, when I was in such epic levels of pain and the hospital refused to give it to me, he was my only advocate. He was the only person that was sitting there watching me suffer in horrific fashion. He was the only person who could afford to take a risk like, hey, I'm going to go ahead and put myself on the line by advocating for a person that I don't know uh, to get the, the relief that they need at a time when I'm also dependent upon this hospital for life. He did that. And I got the relief that I needed. And I realized that I had a living guardian angel with me. Hmm. Left to my own devices, I would have flown solo. The good Lord made sure that I had a teammate when I needed one. I think too often we try to solve everything by ourselves. We try to say, nobody else gets me. Nobody else understands me. I'm just going to do this thing by myself. And we find that it it may be literally impossible to do that. And so the one word of advice is maybe surround yourself with a couple of people that you could refer to as your team and that mutually you can support one another to get through these tough times.
0: Well, my friend, what a, what a beautiful, painful, and life-giving way to wrap up our podcast today. So now we're going to shift gears from your story into what we call around here, the Live Inspired Seven. They are seven questions that tether all of our beautiful guests together. Number one is this, Cujo, what's been the most impactful book you've ever read? I
1: mean, it sounds trite even, but I'd be disingenuous if I didn't
0: say it was the Bible. So that, that's, a, a, from what I understand, a fairly big book, a lot of pages, <laughs> a few chapters, a few different authors within it. Is yeah. there a specific part of the Bible or verse, scripture, something specific that you would turn our listeners' attention toward?
1: Yeah, well, Christ says that I'll be with you always, even until the end of the age. I mean, like, you're looking for hope. How could you not have it in that moment? I mean, it moves me to tears. So, so that's
0: my simple answer. What's one positive characteristic or one trait that you possessed as a little kid growing up that you wish you exhibited as brilliantly today? I used to be really, really fun and funny.
1: I think over the course of time, I've become a little bit more like stern and um, almost too mission-driven at times. I used to be just a joy to be around.
0: If you could sit on a bench and have a long conversation with anyone living or deceased, Who do you want to be seated next to? It'd be
1: neat to talk to Stan Usual, not because of his exploits as a cardinal, not because he was the greatest cardinal of all time, um, but because he was a man of faith throughout. And it's kind of interesting to me to see in a a world where it's difficult to maintain that, how he did. I cried at his funeral. I watched it online. I was living, yeah, and uh, never met the guy. But that, I think, would be an interesting conversation.
0: Well, you're seated next to some pretty cool guests who we've had on the show. One of them was Bob Costas. And Bob Costas was asked a similar question, and he talked about Stan Musial being an example to him. So I asked him to share a story. And he shared the story of the All-Star Game, and I'm going to get the date wrong, but say 1964. And uh, it was a very segregated time, not only in our country, but certainly in baseball. And there were three black athletes playing cards together. And there was this great white athlete that walked into the clubhouse, saw what was going on, sat next, not to the white guys over on one side, sat next to the three black guys on the other side and said, hey, fellas, deal me in. So this was a man who lived out his faith, not by forcing people to meet him in church, but meeting people where they were at the well of life and showing others what that looked like in action. Uh, just a beautiful example in that clubhouse, but I think everywhere that people bumped into stand. Love it. If your home caught fire and your wife and your five babies and all the animals that you might have are out safe and sound and you have an opportunity to run inside and grab one item, what would you grab? Uh, we have a, um, a statue of St. Michael the
1: Archangel that was crafted out of a piece of olive tree that that's about 2,000 years old. May have been actually there providing shade to Christ at the time that, that he walked the earth. And so I think I'd probably
0: grab that thing. That is an unbelievable Gift, mm-hmm. really yeah. cool. I never heard of that before. Mm-hmm.
1: Where'd you where'd you get it? There was a group of folks from the Holy Land that came to our church, and they were selling uh, handcrafted goods, and uh, they just happened to have that.
0: What well, What's the best advice they or some training officer or a wife or a parent or a friend ever gave you? What's done is done. Focus on tomorrow. Uh, and I can attribute that actually to my wife. What advice would you give yourself at age twenty? that's hotshot Air Force Academy pilot, you're now flying your own machinery. What, what advice would you give yourself?
1: Spend a little bit more time digging into why you're here and make sure that you're living that purpose
0: in all that you do. Robert Cujo-Teschner, it has been said that all great people can have their lives summed up in one sentence. How would you like yours to read? You got better over time. And maybe an addendum to that,
1: because every book that I've written has like a little like, you know, sub, subtitle, still working on it.
0: <laughs> Good job. You did get better over time. We all are still working on it, but you are an awesome example of what happens when you open up your mind and your heart, not only to what is possible through your life, but by leaning into your wingmen and co-pilots and others in life, even People you would not necessarily want next to you in a hospital room. What happens when you open up your heart to others? What can be accomplished together? Thank you for spending part of your day and part of your life with us.
1: Thanks for having me, John. And thank you for for doing such an epic job of putting this together. I'm really,
0: really, really impressed with you. Well, you get get the Live Inspired 8 today. So Live Inspired 8, the eighth question for this. Cujo. I know him as a dog or as a hockey goalie. Now I've got a fighter pilot also named Cujo. Where did your call sign Cujo come from? Yeah, I was named at a
1: time when Curtis Joseph was the the goaltender for the St. Louis Blues. Not allowed to tell the stories that were told at my naming, though. That's to protect the semi-innocent. The squadron, the tribe named me Cujo. And it is one of the coolest things that ever happened to me in my life's journey. So though I can't tell you why they named me that. I will leave some mystery here in response to the eighth question. I will say this. I have asked my bride to make sure that the tombstone
0: says Robert Cujo Teshner on it, as opposed to Charles. (laughs) I mean, he could tell us, but then he'd have to kill us. And because the man knows how to fly in F-22, I think we should leave it there. So Cujo, regardless of why you got the name, we're glad you're living into it. We're grateful for the time. My friends, that is my friend Cujo. He's the author of several books, including Debrief to Win. My name is John O'Leary, and today is our day. What a gift. Live inspired. I loved hearing Cujo relive some of the memories as a former combat veteran, a squad commander, a fighter pilot. And when I asked him for advice for anyone who feels like they are flying solo, and from time to time, who doesn't sometimes feel like that? I loved a simple and yet powerful answer. Build a team. Build a team. Lean into those around you. Attract them on. Serve them well. When faced with one of the most serious medical procedures of his life, it was an unlikely teammate that helped Cujo in the most unexpected way. So powerful. So powerful. We all need teams. None of us can fly solo. My friends, if you enjoyed hearing from a military hero like you did today, you'll love my Military and First Responders playlist. From former U.S. Secret Service Special Agent Evie Pomporis to Apollo 13 Captain Jim Lavelle, don't miss that list. As I discuss life and love and service with these American heroes, you can tune in by checking it out at my website. It's Inspires.com forward slash podcast. at the bottom of the playlist we will have that link for you it's a great one military heroes first responders check it out at john o'leary inspires.com forward slash podcast i want to thank you for buckling up and soaring with us during this podcast and i want to remind you all that in spite of the headwinds we face as pilots in life the foundation is firm your life is a gift and the best is yet to come so for this time And until next time, my name is John O'Leary, and today's your day. Live Inspired. You know that Keeley Companies is all about fostering the world-class culture through their incredible cultural pillars. Well, it was time to add a seventh cultural pillar, Keeley Green. Guided by the mission to raise the sustainability standards by which they design, build, operate, and live, Keeley Green is dedicated to using a holistic approach to leave a positive impact on our environment, create a future that is sustainable for generations to come. In the words of Rusty Keeley, we are just getting started. You can learn more about that just getting started mentality and all the work they do by visiting my friends at Keeley Companies online at Keeley.com companies.